Okay, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 is where we're going to start. And um, I'd like us to all stand together. I'm just going to read the passage. It's only like uh, five or six verses. I want to read it in its entirety, and then we'll, we'll unpack it, okay? Chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill that what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quoting from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up from, the sleep, uh, from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he did not know her until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Just reading those words, Father, is precious to us. It stirs us up. And you already know because I've been talking to you about this all day, but I need your help tonight. I'm asking that you would please do what I can't do. I mean, I can study, teach, preach, all that, but I'm very aware that your Holy Spirit has to be the one to make these truths real to us. So Lord, remind us of what we know. Teach us things we don't. Draw us to you, Jesus, tonight in a fresh and new way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, you guys can be seated. <clears throat> well, as I mentioned, Tuesday night we're going to have our Christmas Eve service. And that will be a little bit more of a traditional, and we're going to just kind of read some passages. But I felt compelled, I felt led all week to kind of prime the proverbial pump as it relates to Christmas. I was telling my wife, it was kind of almost like when to look under the hood of the Christmas story for you car guys, like kind of what makes this thing run. Because it's, if we're not careful, we can kind of drift into kind of a cultural celebration of Christmas. And I'm not saying that that's all bad. I'm all about ornaments. I'm all about celebrations. I'm all about Christmas trees. I do it all, okay? I'm into it, just like all you guys. But if we're not careful, we can kind of... Um, get a distracted or diluted understanding of Christmas. Um, it's almost like, you know, not to be a total conspiracy theorist, but it is. It's a conspiracy from the devil who would want to kind of distract us from what Christmas is actually all about. And so every Christmas, you know, program and movie, and, you know, it always ends with a, with a moral saying, well, the real meaning of Christmas is family. The real meaning of Christmas is brotherly love. The real meaning of Christmas is peace. Those are good things, but listen to me carefully. Those are not the real reason for Christmas. Christmas, plain and simple, is a rescue mission. It's the most scandalous, awesome event in world history. It is climactic part of God's redemptive plan for mankind, and I'm running out of vocabulary words to describe the importance of it. So I feel extremely humbled because the more you study stuff like this, the more you realize you don't know. So the goal tonight 
is in some little way to hopefully just lift our eyes to Jesus and just kind of be in awe again to drive us to worship like the wise men that came and traveled thousands of miles just so they could bring gifts and bow down and see the king, that we would have that heart of worship as we go into this season and not get too busy or caught up in this stuff. Amen? That's the goal tonight. I really, I need the Holy Spirit to help me with it, but that's the heart behind it. So what I'd like to do is just consider some of these things. We can't consider all of it, but here's going to be the approach. I want to give a little bit of the backdrop, a little bit of the story, which is pretty self-explanatory. I won't spend a lot of time on that. But then kind of the focus of what I want to talk about tonight revolves around the two names that are used in that passage for Jesus. Jesus and Emmanuel. And so that's kind of how I want to look at that. Let's start with the backdrop. Um, if you've been around Christianity or, um, you know, church during Christmas time, you're probably familiar with the story. I don't want to exhaust it tonight, but just to kind of look at those first few verses. It said the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And, and the word Christ there, just for you note takers, is, is an important word. It means in the Greek anointed. It's Mashiach in the Hebrew, which also means anointed. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but it took place in this way. It says that when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, she was betrothed. You guys probably know this by now. Uh, it means that she was a part of an arranged marriage with Joseph. Mary was probably somewhere between 15 and 18 years old. No, definitely not any older than 20. She was betrothed to Joseph. They were going to get married. It was an arranged deal. Parents had set up the thing. Money had exchanged hands. Uh, an official like ceremony in the sense of doing the deal had taken place. The difference is, is that they hadn't cohabitated yet. They hadn't consummated the marriage yet. They weren't physically together. They weren't living in the same home together. But in that culture, it was absolutely already um, understood that they were married. In fact, later on it says that Joseph wanted to divorce her. Did you catch that? That's a legal term. To get out of a betrothal, you actually had to go through a legal divorce. So they were technically married without the, the bennies at this point. So um, it says that she was found with child. She was found with child. Now we know, we're going to probably read from Luke this next Tuesday, but you guys remember real quickly what happened. The angel comes to Mary Mary, you're going to have a baby. Uh, how is this possible? I've never been with a man. He says, because the baby that's in you is going to be conceived uh, by the Holy Spirit. And so at some point, Mary makes that known to Joseph. And just to kind of just be real frank and just kind of step into their sandals, he's not buying it. <laughs> Do you guys understand that? I mean, would you? Like, your girlfriend comes, I know we're, we're going to be married, I'm pregnant, but don't worry. It's cool. It's God. Right. He's not buying it. We know he's not buying it because it says he was resolved to put her away. That means divorce her quietly. And it, it also says he was a good man. In other words, he didn't want to shame her, which he could have done according to the, to the law. He could have shamed her in front of the whole city, in front of all the, he could have just made her life miserable, but he, he loved her. He cared for her here. He was a good man. He didn't want to do that. So he says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to just, um, We'll just do a quiet divorce. But notice that word, he resolved himself. He had a plan to divorce Mary. And as he's thinking about that one night, he's drifting off into sleep and he has a dream. The angel of the Lord comes to him and just reassures him, Joseph, don't be scared. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. It's true. The baby that's in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
and you're gonna, she's going to have a boy, and you're going to name him Jesus. You're going to name him Jesus. So that's the backdrop to it. Now, I want to consider that in verse 21 where it says, um, where it says, and you shall call his name Jesus. I speculate that um, it might have been a little anticlimactic for Joseph at this point. Here's what I mean. He's having an angel talk to him in a dream and say, the baby that your fiancé is going to have is conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. How many of you guys think that's a, that's a game changer? Like, that's special. That's different. Um, he's doing the math at this point, maybe thinking, okay, this might be the promised one that we'll talk about in a second. It's happening. This is a miraculous thing. It, this is special. Whoa, this is crazy. And, and, then it, and then the angel says, and you'll name him Jesus. Now, we're like, oh, Jesus, yeah, something about that name. You know, we're like, we're all about Jesus. But I think it might have been a, a little anticlimactic for Joseph. Why? Because Jesus was like, the most common name. There, here's why. Jesus in the Greek is Yeshua in Hebrew or Joshua, right? Or it, it's Yeshua or Joshua, I should say, in the Hebrew. Now, guys, that's a, that was a super common name. There was five Joshuas on their block already, like at the playground. There's five, you saw Josh and like seven kids would come running because everybody named their kid Yeshua. Why? Joshua was one of their national heroes, right? Joshua led them into the promised land. There was priests named Joshua. It was like, the mo- it was like no offense. It was like Bob. No offense, Bob. It's a great name, man. Special. Chosen. Um, the point it was common, but, but here's the thing. <laughs> but what would make Jesus, this Jesus, different from every Jesus is he would fulfill the name Jesus. The name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. And Jesus would fulfill that. In fact, this is the operative phrase of this sentence. Listen, you will call his name Jesus for or because, that's a reasoning word, he will save his people from their sins. Amen? You're going to name him Jesus, Jehovah is salvation. I know there's a lot of other Joshua's out there, but you're going to name him Jesus because this Jesus is going to save his people from their sin. His name means salvation, and that's exactly what he's going to do. Amen? Now, think about this with me for a second. Here's the problem. The problem wasn't that the Jewish people weren't looking for a Savior. They absolutely were. Every good Jewish man, every good Jewish woman or boy or girl were taught from day one that there's coming a Savior. And we don't have time to develop all of this, but there's good reason for this. The Bible declared from the very beginning that there would be a Savior, the anointed one, the servant of God that would come. The problem was is that their understanding of who that Savior would be was was absolutely not that he would be a Savior from sin, but that he would be, listen, a political, military, economic hero. Their idea of a Savior was that he would ride in on a white horse literally and like free their nation from all oppressors, i.e. Rome, 
that he would bring them back to national prominence, that they would be set free in that regard, that their economics would blow up, they'd have prosperity with all their vegetation, they'd be raised up to prominence, they would have a king that would sit on the throne and, and rule and reign with equity and justice and prosperity. Now, where did they get those ideas? All over the Bible, all over the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 11, that there'd be a ruler who would rule with equity. Psalm 2, that there'd be a king who would rule with a fist of iron. On and on it would go. Zechariah 14, he would rule from Jerusalem. It's not that their theology was wrong in that regard. They were just missing an element. Does that make sense? What they didn't understand or chose not to understand was the other side of the coin was that there were scriptures like Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Isaiah 52 and 53, about upon him was laid the iniquity of us all, all we like sheep have gone astray. There were and are scriptures that talked about a suffering servant as the Savior, but they were looking for the conquering king Savior. Does that make sense? Have you ever wondered why, why did they just hold, like, as a whole, a nation rejected Jesus. He did not fit their mold of what their Savior was supposed to look like. He didn't go to their schools. He, didn't, he wasn't a rabbi like them. He wasn't a religious dude like them. He didn't come to do that, listen, yet. See, here's the thing. He is that Savior. By the way, as an aside, do you guys understand that there's, this is what they didn't understand. There were two comings, two advents. The first advent would be Jesus coming to save us from sin. The second advent is going to be, yet still future, Jesus coming on the white horse, ruling and reigning in righteousness to physically come to this earth to establish a righteous kingdom on this earth for a thousand years where we will rule and reign with him. And all those things about the nation of Israel and all the things about prosperity and all the things about the reverse of the curse and all that are going to happen. Amen? That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for... That was a weak amen. Maybe I didn't give you time to breathe on that. That's what we're waiting for. Amen, he's coming. I love it. Okay. I feel like Andy up here. I'm just kidding, Andy. I love you. It's not that they were wrong in, in who, what Messiah would do. It's just that they didn't understand the big picture. And the big picture was before Jesus comes as the conquering king, he first had to come as the suffering servant for the purpose of saving from sin. Do you understand that in that sentence, in the name contains the entire mission of why Jesus came? Jesus was born. He came into this world to save us from our sin. And I want to say something that may sound very no-duh to a lot of you guys who've been around the church for a while, but sometimes the no-duh things are we need to be reminded of. The greatest need then and the greatest need now for mankind is we need to be saved from our sins. Do you agree with that? The greatest need in the world is people need to be saved from sin. It's not necessarily the greatest felt need, but it is the greatest need. The greatest need is to not get the right person elected into the White House. The greatest need is not to get clean water in Africa. That's a great and honorable and a need, yes, but it's not the greatest need. The greatest need is not an economic revamp. The greatest, the greatest need we have is that we have been contaminated and stained with sin and we are under condemnation and unless somebody saves us, we will die and go into an eternity separate from God 
This is not a popular message in our culture today that is so afraid to offend people or say something's wrong, and if we say something wrong, all of a sudden you're judging me. This is the most loving thing. Uh, well, you know what I love about the Bible? The Bible just pulls no punches. I'm so glad the Bible tells it like it is. Can I just remind us of some things? You don't have to track with me on all these, but maybe jot them down in your notes that you're taking because I know that you're good students. We need to understand, listen, that at the fall of man in, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and sin came into the world, the Bible says that by, I'm going to sum, summarize this, this is from Romans 5, that through one man's disobedience, sin and death came into the world because all have sinned. We need to understand that the fallout from Adam's sin has permeated and contaminated and stained every aspect of our human existence. The reason that there is death, the reason we die physically is because of sin. The reason there's cancer is because of sin. The reason there's mental illness is because of sin. The reason there's natural disasters is because of sin. The reason there's fear is because there's sin. The reason there's crime is because of sin. It is all because of sin. The reason there's loneliness, the reason there's pain internally, the reason our bodies don't function the way they is all the fallout of sin. There's not a day that goes by, an ounce of our day that goes by that we're not in some way dealing with personally or some indirect way the fallout of sin in this world. And the greatest fallout is this, that what sin did is it brought a separation between man and God. That's the greatest fallout. That because of sin, and you and I were born with the very nature of the first Adam, therefore we have inherited it, inherited it, 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 it. it's a remix. We inherited a sinful nature. There's the old saying, we don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It is in who you are. Well, I'm not that, that bad of a person. Well, not if you're comparing yourself to somebody else who's worse than you, but the reality is that the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let me just, in case there's any doubt on this, I just want to read this real quick. This is from Romans chapter 3. It's kind of vague, so try to pick up what, what he's saying. There's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Everyone has turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. They lie. Venom as asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path is ruin and misery. In the way of peace they do not know, and there's no fear of God before their eyes. And it's a few verses later that says, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6 goes on to say, and the wages of sin is death. Point made? The greatest need that every human being has is to be saved from their sin. And Jesus came to save us from our sin. I'm so thankful that the Bible tells it like it is and as uncomfortable as it is for somebody maybe in our culture to hear that something's wrong with them, that's the most loving thing we need, we need to understand that. You don't want to go to a doctor and you have cancer and the doctor doesn't want to upset you and says, no, everything's fine. You want that doctor to say, you have cancer and this is what we need to do and if we can cut it out, we need, and what do you say? Let's get rid of that stuff, right? And we have the cancer of sin, every single one of us. We're under condemnation. One more passage on this, and I know, I know you know this. I know it's theology 101, 
But if we don't understand our need for salvation, we won't understand the gravity of what it is that Jesus did to save us. Listen to John chapter 3. This is Jesus' words in a passage that we all know, or at least we, we know the sign from, from football games. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is the part we forget sometimes. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the only son of God. Did you catch that? Jesus clarified his mission. I have come because you're already condemned to hell, but I've come to save you from that. You'll call his name Jesus. For he'll save his people from their sin. The greatest need we have and the mission, the greatest need we have is salvation and the mission of Jesus is contained in his name. That's why he came. That's what Christmas is all about. And if you miss this, you'll miss Christmas. Jesus came to save sinners. Who's a sinner? You. You. I know some of you. Me. I needed saving. You need saving. Well, secondly, the second thing I want to consider before we go, and this will only take another four to five sessions, <laughs> um, is, is the second part of this, and, and, I'll, and I'm kind of clipping it as I go here, but look at verse 22 now. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken, and he quotes Isaiah, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. So when it says all of this, all of what? All of this virgin birth talk, <laughs> this whole idea. I mean, can you imagine hearing this for the first time? I mean, we, a lot of us have been in church before, but I always wonder, what's this like hearing this for the first time, that a virgin gave birth to a baby? This is just like we accept it nowadays, but a lot of people are probably like, what are you talking about? But all of this is actually fulfilling something that Isaiah wrote down 700 years before this. There was a prophecy that this would happen. Now, I don't want to, I, I, I plan on going to a little bit more of it, but I won't. But this quote is referencing Isaiah 7, which you can read later. And here's what I just want to point out. That prophecy had a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, as that's how prophecy works. A local fulfillment that dealt with their context and a full fulfillment of that prophecy that would come later. The near fulfillment of that prophecy was this. Isaiah came to King Ahaz, king of Judah, bad king. He was under pressure from the king of the north, Israel, and the king of Syria. And Isaiah comes to him and says, God's going to deliver you. Ask him to give you a sign. And this guy in his pompousness was like, I would never ask God for a sign. Isaiah's like, you're trying my patience. Let me give you a sign. A virgin will conceive. And basically what, what was told to him as you read on was that the son would come and before he could even discern good and evil, that threat from the north, Israel, and from Syria would be done away with. God was just saying, I'm going to deliver you and here's a sign. Now, how did that play out? They say it was either Isaiah's own son that was born or Ahaz's son. Nobody really knows for sure. That was dealing with that part of it. But the real application for that prophecy is clarified for us here and it's applied to Jesus and he says, look, no, there's a bigger sign of deliverance. Here's going to be the sign. A virgin will conceive and have a child, and you will call him Emmanuel. You guys tracking with that at all? By the way, the debate is over the word virgin. Here's why. 
The word virgin can be translated in Hebrew either young woman or virgin. So here, let me clarify the argument for you right now. In Isaiah's context, it meant a young woman. In Mary's context, it meant a virgin. Our argument over. But it's, it's very important to, you know, we can't like, you can't be like, well, I'm not sure Jesus was born of a virgin. No, that is a non-negotiable of what we believe, and I'll explain that more in a moment. But here's what I want to get at. This virgin will conceive, and you will call his name Emmanuel. Now, is that confusing to anybody? Because the angel just told Joseph to name him Jesus. But now the prophecy says you're going to supposed to name him Emmanuel. Here's the idea. His name, 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 name is Jesus. Emmanuel is not so much a name that you would call him. It was more of a descriptive title of his nature. Does that make sense? Emmanuel is not so much a name that you would call him. No one went like, Emmanuel, what's up, bro? It was like, it was describing his nature, who he was. Does that make sense? And who was he? It's in the name. God with us. God with us. Now, don't lose me here. And I, I know that this is a little bit more like technical and theological, but it's massively important. When you get to the name Emmanuel, we're now touching on one of the greatest doctrines in the Bible. It's the doctrine of what we call the incarnation. Anybody ever heard that? The incarnation. That's a word that, you know, you've maybe heard that in church circles. It's not a word you'll find in your Bible. You, you can go to your concordance all you want. You're not going to find the word incarnation in your Bible, nor will you find the word rapture or the Trinity, but they're there. The doctrines are there, but these are just the fancy theological terms describing what those things are. The name, or the word rather, incarnation, just literally means in the flesh. The Latin word, if you're interested, I know a lot of you guys will, this is really useful information on the job site tomorrow. Uh, the Latin for incarnation is incarnatio. We are a little more familiar with the Spanish translation, incarne, as in carne asada it means flesh guys that's what it means the word incarnation is the theological term talking about how god is relating to humanity in the flesh god came in the flesh the word the name emmanuel touches on the doctrine of incarnation the incarnation is the idea that god became a man now, this, is, this, is, this gets into some deep waters where I just, my brain starts to seize and smoke a little bit. God became a man. This is important for us to understand. I'm, I'm just going to trim this a little bit as I go here. Um, Jesus is 100% God, and Jesus is 100% man. That's the doctrine of the incarnation. God became a man. Now, right away, we're like, but I don't understand. I don't get, I don't understand. <laughs> I know, I don't either. But we cannot compromise on either one of those things. And I will demonstrate for you in a second how the Bible teaches clearly both of those sides of who Jesus is. He is 100% man. He is 100% God. Interestingly enough, in Bible days, New Testament times, Paul, Peter, those guys, John, when they were writing their epistles, they were fighting against a Gnostic philosophy that had infiltrated the church that, listen, was not questioning the deity of Jesus. They were questioning the humanity of Jesus. Well, they're like, of course he's God. But was he human? And there's a whole, you know, 
convoluted way of thinking that went along with that. They, they, the, the heresy of the day was they were calling, into Je- calling Jesus' humanity into question. Like he would walk along the beach, but nobody ever saw his footprints in the sand. And as I've said before, of course there were footprints in the sand. Where would we, else would we have gotten the poem? <laughs> Anyways. But literally, they would say that nobody actually saw him eat. Like he faked it, you know, like he put it down and then he put it in his pocket. Jesus was 100% human. Jesus was 100% God. That's the argument of today. That's, we don't, they were like, of course he's, he's God, he's just not human. For the, the heresy in our day is, we don't question his humanity, his historical validity. What we question is his deity. The mark of every cult calls into question the deity of Jesus Christ. That is the lin- that's the linchpin right there. Our Jehovah Witness friends, our Mormon friends, this is where their doctrines are damnable. I'm not saying we don't love the people. We love them, of course. But the doctrines of those cults, and we do classify them as cults, not because we're just mean name callers, but we have to classify it as that because it goes against orthodox Christian belief and denies the deity of Jesus Christ. And so... If you compromise on the humanity of Jesus Christ or you compromise on the deity of Jesus Christ, you are now propagating a different Jesus than the biblical Jesus Christ. And that's not who Jesus is. Amen? This is not theological hair splitting. This is foundation. I'm going to demonstrate why in a second. This is absolute non-negotiable doctrinal truth that we cannot, must not, will not compromise on. So, to demonstrate that, and I have a, a, just a ton of scriptures, I'm going to bypass a lot of them, but um, the first one I'll say is this, is, is Jesus was 100% man. I feel like I don't even need to like scripturally back this one up, but it's important. It says in Galatians 4.4, 4, um, it says this, it's a great verse, um, Galatians 4.4, 4, that's Ephesians, Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Philippians chapter 2, one of the clearest, uh, deepest sections on the incarnation, says this. um, Verse 5, have this mind in yourselves that was in Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that is, he was equal with God, didn't grasp equality with God a thing to be or didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Listen, being found in human likeness or human form, he humbled himself. And there's other scriptures we could talk about. He came from Abraham. He came from the tribe of Judah. He came from uh, the line of David. He was human. He sat by the well in John 4, and he was tired, and he was thirsty. Listen, he emptied himself not of his deity, but of his glory, and lived, this is important, he lived 100% as a man when he was on earth. That's why it's when we read the Gospels and he's doing a miracle or he has this word of knowledge, we can't just chalk it up, well, he's Jesus, of course he knows all that stuff. Yes, he's Jesus, but he was a man operating under the power and the, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, just like we are to be. He was tempted like man. Hebrews says he was tempted in every single way, yet without sin. Jesus is the only man, the only human that's ever lived 33 years in this life and never once sinned. He didn't have a sinful nature, but he was tempted to sin. His mom was human. His dad is God. 
Jesus is the second person of the triune Godhead. So he's 100% human, but he's also 100% God. And this is where, I mean, of course, there's books written on this, so we can't exhaust it right now. But just to touch on it, let me put it this way. Jesus is fully God, and he fully participates in every perfection and attribute of God. Did you catch that? Jesus is fully God, participates in every perfection and attribute of God. So if you're talking about what we think about as God, Father God, you think about his attributes such as omnipotence, omnipresence, all that stuff. Those things are related to Jesus. Let me give you a couple of examples on that. Um, Actually, let me read to you a couple of just mind-blowing verses. Jot these down, please. They're important. I'm going to bring this to a head in a second. You're very patient. Hebrews chapter 1, verse um, something. Hebrews chapter uh, 1, verse 3 says this. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is God. And because he is God, Jesus is not a God. He, does, he didn't have a God consciousness. He, wasn't, he is God himself. And because of that, he, like the Father, is preexistent. Do you know Jesus, when he came as a baby, he existed in eternity past before he actually became a baby? He always existed. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Whatever the beginning you're talking about, Jesus was already there with the Father. He is God. Amen? He always was. He always existed. In the Old Testament, he would appear. Who do you think was in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They looked like There's a fourth in there, and it looks like the Son of God. Who is the angel of the Lord that came and talked to Joshua? These are pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ. He always was. He had no beginning, just like the Father. And if that doesn't make your brain boil, I don't know what will. Jesus also, here's another, I'll just leave it at these two examples. But Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of life. Hebrews 1, or excuse me, Hebrews 11.3, I believe it is, says that the Word created the heavens as we know it. Jesus created the world. Listen to this, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, I, I read verse 15, but let me go on from there. Verse 16, for by Him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rules or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. That is a verse that you just like, want to stand up and go, yes! Jesus created all things, and through Jesus, all things are literally what the Greek means, held together. He is holding, sustaining life as you know it because of Jesus. You breathe because Jesus says so. I'm just giving you a couple little, in Jason-style, theological tidbits. The point is, is that when Jesus came as Emmanuel, That describes his nature. Who is he? He's God with us. He's God, but he's man. You can't diminish either one of those without destroying who Jesus is and then listen without cheapening what Jesus did. What did I say about the name Jesus? His mission is revealed in his name. The means of that mission are revealed in Emmanuel. The means of that mission. How is he going to save? How is he going to save us from our sin? That's the big question. He had to come as a man. 
as the God-man. If Jesus didn't come as the God-man, there would be no way to save us from our sin. Why? Because when Jesus was 33 years old, he went to the cross. And he died on that cross as a substitutionary sacrifice. He was the propitiation for our sins. He made atonement for us. And if he wasn't all man and all God at the same time, he wouldn't be able to sufficiently make atonement for the sins of mankind. If he was all man, that would mean that he would have a sinful nature and he would be an imperfect sacrifice and he couldn't represent a sinless sacrifice for humanity. Does that make sense? If he's all God, then he's not able to represent humanity on the cross because it's just God dying, but he's not dying for humanity. He's, does that make sense? But listen, because he's man, he represents mankind on the cross, all of mankind. Sinless, the only sinless, spotless man. But he was God, which means he was sinless. And listen, this is the kicker. It means that God died for man that's the scandalous part the salvation plan was that God would pay a debt he didn't owe to satisfy a debt we couldn't pay that's grace unless we get all tied up in knots over the theology of it can I just end with this here's why because God so loves the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We can wrestle with the theology of this all night long, and it's good stuff to do. But when that revelation hits your heart that God did this because he loves you, what will cause a man to die for someone else? Scarcely will a good man die for somebody, but, you know, it's possible. But the Bible says God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for good people, you guys. They punched him in the face. They spit on him. They ripped the hair out of his beard. They mocked him. They hocked loogies on his face, you guys. They stripped him naked and hung him on the street side on a cross, completely exposed and bleeding out. And mocked him. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's grace. That's grace. For God loved you. God loved me in my sin. He didn't love me when I was trying to be a good person. He loved me at my worst. Now that I'm trying to be a good person, he doesn't love me anymore. He loved you as much as he'll ever loved you when you were at your worst amen what's the point of all this well i'll end now here's my applications number one i pray that in some way those of us who know jesus christ as our lord and savior this christmas eve this christmas season would not get caught up in a distracted diluted celebration of christmas but that we would be in awe of exactly who jesus is and exactly why he came and we would cause ourselves, or find ourselves rather, worshiping like never before. Bowing, submitting, in awe, speechless before God as we consider him and what he's done. Secondly, if you have found yourself in one of these red chairs tonight, 
and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God brought you here tonight because he loves you. He's not willing that you would spend an eternity apart from him. You have a problem. It's called sin. You cannot deal with it on your own. There's no other salvation. There's one remedy. God provided through his son. You have to put your faith in what Jesus did on the cross for you personally. He died on the cross, but the subsequent resurrection from the cross proved who he is. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you're here tonight and you've never called upon the name of the Lord to be your personal Savior, do not leave, I beg you, those doors without making him your Savior. And then lastly, is there another one? You're supposed to have three points. Um, I'm just kidding. I do want to say this, last, this. This verse just kind of snuck up on me today. In Hebrews 9, verse 28, it says this. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Can I tell you this, that Jesus is on his way? The prophecies about his first coming were literal, and they came to pass, literally. The prophecies of his second coming are literal, and they are coming to pass. He's coming back. The baby in the manger is coming back as the king of creation, the ruler of all. And we have a great, great message. We get to go tell people that they can, it's not too late. They can be a part of the kingdom because the king is coming. Amen? Let's all stand together and we'll pray. Thanks for being patient. I went a little late tonight. Father, tonight we just want to give pause and just say, um, Lord, thank you so much for it doesn't even seem like enough to say thank you. It seems like not enough. But thank you. Thank you for coming. It's, it's hard to even consider that who you are in being born into such humble means. I pray that tonight, God, we would have a little bit better understanding of who you are and what you've done. I pray for any tonight that have never received you as their Savior. Guys, can we just do this? It would be kind of silly not to. If you're here and you've never received Jesus, you don't know if you're a Christian, you're not sure if you have grabbed onto all of this truth, but you want to be forgiven, you want to receive the greatest gift of all, the salvation that God has given to you. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short, but the free gift of God is salvation for all who believe. Do you want to believe tonight? Do you want to put your trust in Jesus tonight? If you do, I just want to invite you to raise your hand up in the air right now. You're not signing up for anything. You're just lifting your heart to God. If that's you, I'm not even looking around, but if that's you, just lift your hand up to God and I want to lead you in a prayer. Say, Father, I know I'm a sinner. There's nothing I can do to undo my sin. I need a Savior. Please come into my life. Be my Savior. Rescue me. I believe in you, that you died, that you were buried, but you rose again. I receive the free gift of salvation right now. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.